as we travel through the book of the gospel of Matthew I'm gonna say this is not my notes I just feel led to say this I know that many of you sitting here today myself included have read this gospel many times over your life so therefore I want to challenge you don't let what you think you know get in the way Let's take a fresh look. Do your best as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew to take a fresh look at both the life and the teaching of Christ. Because what I have found even after so many years of studying different books in God's Word is that there's always something else for God to teach me 
through his word. But sometimes I have to get out of my own way, right? Am I, am I the only one? I have to put aside what I think I know and look at it with fresh eyes as if I've never taken the journey before. And so I'm going to challenge you to do that uh, as we walk through the gospel of Matthew. And let's look especially at the fact that uh, what the gospel of Matthew and God's word in general, but especially the gospel of Matthew defines and describes Jesus as, as opposed to some of the less than versions we can begin to create in our own mind, uh, much less the world. There's all kinds of images about who Jesus is, right, in our world, sometimes in our churches, but what, how does that line up with what God's word reveals? So let's look, and I'm calling this, this series, this journey through Matthew, the bridge to redemption, and as you well know, common sense, a bridge, especially if you look at that image on the screen, a, a footbridge is there to get you from one place to another that you couldn't get on your own. And the good of the bridge is only the good of the bridge when you do what? You actually trust the bridge and you step on it and you walk across it. And that's the same thing with Christ. He offers the actual, and I mean real life, day-to-day possibility of living a redeemed life. But that is only the case if you're willing to get on the bridge. It is only the case when you and I learn how to follow him one day at a time. And I want to go all the way back in chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, we'll begin in chapter 2 of Matthew with verse 13. And I want us to begin by going all the way back to the birth of Christ. This is part of a story you would hear at Christmas. And I want us to look once again, again through some fresh eyes, at what happened when Jesus was born into this world, when God sent his son. And I want you to take note of the timing. Because Jesus did not arrive when we had our lives all nice and tidy or when the world was all in a good place. Jesus, as we're going to see, he arrived. He was sent purposely by God, his Father, when, when things were in intense chaos and people were in great pain. Jesus has a way of arriving in the middle of the mess, not when we get things all tidied up. And that's the good thing. Christ does not need you to fix yourself because you can't. He does not need you to get unmessy because that's who we are. And he will come to you right in the middle of the chaos and even the pain of your own life as well. So quit trying to think that you have to fix things before you can really know him and follow him because that's not the case as we're going to see. Now look in verse 13, begin with, let's look and see what Matthew reveals about this time when Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. And it says in verse 13, and when they had gone, I'll come back to who the they is there, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream Get up, that's the angel speaking. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Herod is trying to kill Jesus. So he got up, that is Joseph, and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. 
And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you're familiar with the story, I'm not going to deal with verse 16, but Herod did not get the information from the Magi where Jesus was so he could kill him. He said he was going to worship, but he was there trying to get rid of Christ, knowing that God had prophesied the coming of Christ. So Herod knows that he's trying to wipe out something much bigger than just a Hebrew baby. And so Herod sends in his soldiers and he murders, he massacres in that little town of Bethlehem and the surrounding areas any boy that is born to the age of two. So this great immense, uh, you can't even, and I can't imagine pain, has been visited on that town. And here's what Matthew said in response to that event, especially verse 17. He goes on to say, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice, and he's quoting Jeremiah, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now go back to verse 13. Who's the they in the, in the, the verse there when he says, when they had gone. Jesus had been born. And if you look back at verses 1 through 12 in Matthew chapter 2, it is referring, of course, to the Magi. We traditionally call them the what? The three wise men at Christmas. So these were men that had traveled far. They knew the prophecy. They, they had seen the star of Bethlehem and they had traveled a long way. We don't know exactly where they came from. There are guesstimations by different scholars on where they came from. But nonetheless, they traveled. They didn't just come for any ordinary Hebrew baby. There's a lot of Hebrew boys being born in the world. This is, that was nothing new. But this child was something new. And they came, according to God's word, to worship him. And they brought, as you remember the story, what? Gifts of frankincense, etc., etc., myrrh. And, and, and they laid it at his feet. And these were all the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh were all gifts for a king, the king of kings. They came not just to see and spectate. They came to see something that God was doing in the world. And so they arrived there and they found the Christ child and they worshiped him. And so I want you to notice, though, how quickly something that was joy turns into something very intense. Because when they had gone, when they had left, and there's no indication that was a long period of time, when they had gone, Joseph and Mary, probably exhausted from the event of the day, if you will, they are in a sound sleep when Joseph, once again, it's another occurrence in chapter one, once again, an angel came to him in a dream. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now that word appeared, is, is important to, to grasp in terms of what the New Testament means because it means to lighten or to shine light on. And it, it of course, is, is showing and in ref, referring to something that Joseph can't see on his own. God is giving him revelation. God is warning and protecting him. And he is helping him have insight into the danger of something coming that Joseph otherwise would have been asleep and never saw coming, right? Right? 
So 2 Peter, interestingly, refers to a prophetic word that God will give you and protect you at times. He will give you leading and insight that you can't have on your own. He refers to it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 in this way. He says, we also have a prophetic message as something completely reliable. In other words, pay attention to God's word. Don't blow it off. Don't run by it. He's saying it is reliable and you will do well to do what? Hello? Pay attention. Pay attention to it. And he says, as a light shining in a dark place, very similar to this word appearance, as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That is the light of Christ. That is the insight that Christ will give you. And so look back at the story, verse 13. It says, and they had gone, the Magi had left, and this appearance had happened, and the angel told Joseph to do what? Quit sleeping and get up. Get up in the middle of the night and take the child and the mother and do what? Escape to Egypt. And then he says, stay there. Now, let's pause for a moment and look at that escape to Egypt. You and I may think, well, no big deal. You get up from Bethlehem, you go over to Egypt. It was a 75-mile walk, if you will, because they didn't have a bus to get to Egypt, to the border of Egypt. And then if you're going to find any major city, and likely they would have gone, very possibly gone to Alexandria, which would have been an additional 100 miles. So you got a newborn baby, a wife, and a husband that are traveling this way. This is going into a foreign place. This is a scary place for them to go. This is not to get up and go next door and hide. This is a long journey, and this would have been far out of the reach in the jurisdiction of Herod himself. Now, here's what's interesting to me. First of all, it could very well have been that they went to Alexandria. We don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. But why Alexandria? You see, Alexander the Great, before the Romans had taken over, he established Alexandria in Egypt as a safe haven for who? The Hebrew people, for God's people. And to that day, in the Roman times, it was still a safe haven. So there were a lot of Jews, there were a lot of Hebrews that lived in Alexandria. We don't know if they went there or not, but again, that would have been one possibility as a safe haven. Here's another thing that I find interesting. The Bible doesn't directly address, but it's interesting to me, before they went on their trip, which would have required resources to make the trip and to stay in Egypt for however long God was going to have them stay there, Joseph was not a rich man. So where did he get these resources? Guess what? The Magi showed up and offered them what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All very high-priced gifts and very expensive. It's very possible that God was providing the resources to them to make the journey and trust him before they even knew they needed to, right? God does that if you let him. He provides for you even before you know you have a need. And that's what I believe is happening here. He provided a way for them to go. And so Joseph has a choice to make. He can roll back over and go to sleep, right? Or he can do what? He can only get up. But God said something else to them I think is important for you and I to note. He said, when you get to Egypt, he said, stay there. He didn't say get to Egypt and trust your timing. He said what? Stay there. 
You see that that phrase stay there is important in its form and not just in its meaning because it's in the imperative which gives it the force of a command. So God is not making a suggestion to Joseph. He's making, he's giving him a command. And in fact, the word or the phrase itself refers to being all in. It means to trust completely. And so God is asking Joseph to trust me completely. I know what I'm asking you to do sounds strange. And I know you don't understand where I'm leading you or why, but trust me. He's asking Joseph to trust him. And I don't mean passively trust him. Hear the information and park it. But I mean actively trust him. Be responsive. So what did Joseph do? Look at the very next verse, verse 14. So he what? He got up. You see, he got up, he responded. And it's interesting because Joseph had a history of doing this. What we know about Joseph is contained in these first two chapters of Matthew. You go back to Matthew chapter, I don't have time, Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. Joseph had a, a same kind of appearance through an angel and he did what God told him to then. He responded, he was responsive in his faith, not passive. He didn't just park what God told him somewhere and tucked it away or leave it on the chair and go on with life. He responded to him. He trusted God. And I believe the reason for that is that Joseph was grounded in his word. He could hear the voice of God and discern when God was leading in his life because he was prepared to. Are you hearing me? You, you see, when we just put our God's word aside and depend on a sermon a week to actually gain insight about God, about Christ in your life, you're probably not going to have it. As good as my sermons are, that's not enough. You've got to take a personal journey in his word. You've got to be choose, you've got to choose, I've got to choose to be grounded in his word, or I'm gonna miss his voice in my life. Joseph was grounded in his word and he didn't miss God's voice, and then he made the choice to respond. How do I know? Because it says it right there. He got up. So he got up and took the child and his mother, verse 14. And where he did what next? He stayed. There's that word again. He stayed. He waited on God's timing. And look at this next verse because the word fulfilled is used twice in this one brief passage referring to prophecy that was fulfilled. This was all prophesied according to Matthew. And he says, but this was fulfilled in what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, what in the world is he referring to? He's quoting from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. I don't have time to dig into every jot and tittle. We could spend a whole sermon just on this one topic, that one little phrase. But here's what I will say. What Hosea was referring to, he's reminding the people of God that God had delivered them out of Egypt in a time where they had gotten themselves enslaved because they drifted away from God. They had this habit of doing that. We're going to see that again in the next part of this passage. And so Hosea is referring to that. Do you know the story of Hosea? It's a, it's a story about Israel drifting away from God and God redeeming his people despite themselves. 
And in this case, he is saying, he's using as a prophetic connection in saying, and this was 700 years later, Jesus is going to come out of Egypt and offer a redemption that is nothing compared to what we saw in the Old Testament times. Jesus is going to offer a redemptive life to all of the world, not just the Hebrew people. Jesus is going to change this world and his son is going to come out of Egypt to do so. So that was a prophetic connection that Matthew is making from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 in particular. Then we, we well, let's pause. I almost blew past this. And I don't want to do that. Let's pause just for a moment. What can we learn from the life of Joseph on a practical basis? What can you and I apply in our own lives that has to do with this narrative, this story that we see in God's word. First of all, we see that he was sensitive. That is, Joseph was sensitive to God's leading. How was he sensitive? Once again, he was grounded in God's word. He could hear the voice of God because he was listening for the voice of God. You know, my experience is that generally speaking, God doesn't shout. He whispers. He wants to make sure you're hearing him. And so if I'm going to hear the voice of Christ in my life as on a consistent basis, I'm going to have to be listening for it, right? Because generally speaking, he doesn't just shout at you. And so Joseph was consistently hearing God's voice before he could do this next thing. He was responsive to God's leading. It is one thing for God to provide the bridge. It is quite another for you to walk it. You and I, if we're going to keep growing and we're going to experience the redemption that Christ wants to create in our lives, take the broken pieces and make something of more value in our lives, we've got to choose not just to hear, but to what? Respond. Not what you know. It's what you do with what you know that changes your life. But only what we see here is he was all, don't you love this part? He waited on God. How many of you like to practice patience? I didn't think I'd get any takers on that one. Me either. The hardest thing in your relationship with Jesus Christ is what? Wait. I would rather God say no. I definitely want him to say yes. But I hate it when he says wait. That, that is, that's the struggle. And you grow most from what? Waiting, Exactly. That's when he does the greatest work in you and me is when we're willing to wait. And listen, when I'm willing to wait, I am saying I trust more what God knows than what I think I know. I'm going to quit trusting my instincts and trust what he reveals and what he knows in a given moment. And I've got that choice, do I not? And you do too. I can continue to trust my timing or I can trust his timing. I don't know about you, but I'm a proven, I can give you example after example where I've trusted my timing and it's never worked, right? It always works better when I trust his, even though it means I have to wait. And that's what we can learn, I think, as well from Joseph, is he, when he arrived in Egypt, I'm sure he didn't want to stay there that long. That was a foreign place. That wasn't hometown. That wasn't where family was. I'm sure he wanted to leave sooner than later. But he stayed. He stayed until God said, let's go. So let's look at the last part of the story, verses 17 and 18. 
So that massacre occurs at the hands of this evil tyrant known as Herod, the Roman puppet governor of the, the Middle East at the time, Jerusalem, Judea. And he, he does this massacre because his, and he was a, I could get into him and say quite a bit, I'm not going to go there right now. But look at what it says in regard to that event in Herod. He said in verse 17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was what? Here we go again. There it is. It's the word, the same word used in verse 15 that means to bring to completion. What was all along going to happen and prophesied had brought, been brought to completion. Well, what was brought? What was the prophecy and the connection from the time of the Old Testament to the time of Jesus' life? And here it is in verse 18. He's quoting Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And he says, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. What is all that about? First of all, the, the city or the town of Ramah in in uh, Old Testament times was about five miles north of Jerusalem. And it was the holding place for God's people when the Assyrians conquered and destroyed Jerusalem. They had again drifted far from God and made a mess out of their lives. And all of a sudden they find themselves not free, but enslaved. Enslaved by the Assyrians to be dragged off to Babylon. And Ramah was a staging area where they would hold all the people that they were going to ship all the way up to Babylon, far out of their homes, after their lives had been destroyed. All of this, according to God's word, is self-inflicted. From drifting away from God. So they are now enslaved and not a free people. And so the same thing with, with Bethlehem. They, in God's people, they are an enslaved people. Not just literally by the Romans, but spiritually they've been in the dark ages for a long time. He says, a voice in Ramah is weeping with, with weeping and great mourning. And that means intense pain. Now what is the reference to Rachel? Rachel's weeping specifically. Rachel was considered by the Hebrew people the mother of all the Hebrew people, if you will. And back when this was quoted in the Assyrian time, when they were destroyed and taken and carted off as slaves, she had been passed. She had passed away. And so she is weeping, in, an, in a sense, from the grave. And so here we are with Matthew, and he's saying, once again, Rachel is weeping from the grave because his people have lost something. My children are taken away. They're gone. But here's the good news. Back in the Old Testament time, a few generations later, what did God do? He redeemed his people out of slavery and brought them back to the promised land. You know what Jesus is saying he's going to do and why Matthew's making the connection? Because this Jesus is going to redeem all people that are willing. His people is all people. He's going to redeem them out of the slavery and the destruction and the pain of their lives. You know what I love about this? Once again, Jesus didn't come in the midst of everything being tidy and clean. He came when things were messy and painful. When they were chaotic and messy and painful in many people's lives. And he promises this redemption that they probably couldn't even imagine possible. You've, you've heard, I think I've told this story before just quite a few years back. But if you break a bowl or a vase, 
you and I will tend to do what? When it's broken, sweep it up, throw it away, right? But there's an interesting tradition, if you will, in the Japanese culture, and it's a it's an artistic tradition, an art technique called kintsugi. Some of you probably are familiar with this. There's an example of it where these artists will take these broken pieces, these bowls, these vases, or whatever it may be. Instead of throwing them away, they make it into something even more valuable. Well, how do they do that? They, they take the pieces and they they put them back together with liquid gold in the breaks or liquid silver or a lacquer that's dusted with powdered gold in the breaks of the pottery or the bowl. And, and the scars become a part of the art. The broken pieces become a part of the story. And ultimately, the, the finished product in the right hands, in the artist's hands, is even more valuable than it was before it was broken. You see, I think that's a beautiful picture of what Jesus can do with anybody's life, if you're willing. He can take your broken pieces, no matter how broken you feel, no matter how broken you are, because we're all broken. And he can put them together, not just put them back together, but put you back together whole as something even more valuable than you were before. And that is what Christ is saying he, he wants to do. That is what the gospel of Matthew is saying. When Jesus entered the world, that was the reason he came. That is to offer redemption. So I want to leave you with this, this challenge. You and I, as a follower of Christ or somebody who's trying to figure out who Jesus is, you've got a choice every day of your life. There's basically two choices. You can do this or not. You can choose to trust the timing of Christ and quit trusting your own. You can choose to trust what Christ knows, what his word knows, what God knows, or you can keep on trusting your own instincts and keep creating the messes, right? Come on. You've got a choice to make, do I not? Every single day, each new day, I can either choose to trust his timing or trust my timing. Seek his timing or not. And number two, you have to choose to act, to follow where Christ leads. Joseph got up. He could have rolled over and gone back to sleep, right? He could have just ignored it and said, must have been something I ate. But he didn't. Two times we see this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter one and two, he responded. He knew when God was speaking and he, probably afraid, probably not sure of the destination, but he chose to trust and follow. So that's my question for you and I. Has Jesus just become this academic thing in your life? Come on, be, be honest just for a moment. Just you and God, I, can't, I don't know what you're, the conversation, I don't want to know. Has Jesus just become this academic exercise in your life? Or is he truly someone you're learning who he actually is? This one who is the bridge to redemption? Or is he something, something else? Is he someone you're learning to trust and choosing to follow or not? Which is it going to be? Just play the game or actually follow where he leads? Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word as always, and especially as we get to look at and just review and reconsidering from a fresh perspective who Jesus is and who he wants to be right now in our lives. For anybody here that's not sure about Christ that hasn't committed their hearts to him in faith, I pray that you'll keep working on their hearts and their minds and whether online or here on campus, Father, I pray that you will do the work that only you can. And that ultimately, if that is anybody here today, that they will choose to say yes to you in faith. Father, I pray for those of us that have made that initial step of faith, that if we've gotten stuck in the mud somewhere along the way and, and we have stopped listening for your voice in our life, and following where you lead, I pray that you'll re-energize us and re-inspire us, convict us. This is a new day. And one, at a, one day at a time, I pray that we will learn to trust you, trust your timing, and to choose to follow where you lead. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.